Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6? And if you're new with us, we want to welcome you and just let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And a few weeks ago, we entered into John 6. As we did, we said it's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, containing one of the greatest teachings in the Bible, the Bread of Life Discourse. Now, we have begun to work our way through this all-important discourse. I say all-important because the topic is eternal life, nothing more important than that. Mentioned eight times in this discourse, and four times the Lord emphasizes the importance of what he is saying with the words, most assuredly I say to you, his way of saying in the strongest possible terms, listen up, nothing is more important than what I'm telling you at this moment. So we... Um, have started to work through our outline, four main points, and the first one we have entitled The Physical Preoccupation of the Multitudes. Now let me give you the background since I see some new faces. Um, this takes place on the day after the Lord Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children, upwards of 20,000 people, with just five little barley crackers and a couple of small pickled fish like sardines. And he multiplied that because they were all out in the field there uh, listening to him teach. And they had been there all day, and so they were hungry. And so Jesus took this small amount of food. He gave thanks uh, to his father and broke it, and he kept distributing it to the disciples who kept passing it out. And uh, they not only fed everyone until they were glutted, the Greek says, but they uh, took up 12 baskets of fragments, all right? So, you know, the people are, you know how you feel after you eat Thanksgiving meal. You're stuffed. You want to lay down and go to sleep. So they did, but before they laid down and camped out that night, they saw that Jesus had his disciples get into a boat and cross back over the Sea of Galilee towards Capernaum. And uh, then he went up on a mountain. They saw him go up on a mountain, and they fell asleep. Next morning, they woke up, and they're hungry. So where's Jesus? Okay. He fed us last night, and we were feeling pretty good. Uh, what's he got in store for us this morning? So they look around, and he's not anywhere to be found. They uh, rightly assume that he had somehow gone over to the area of Capernaum to rejoin uh, his disciples. So they got into boats, and some ran around the uh, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, they converged on Capernaum, and they said to the Lord when they finally found him, Lord, when did you come here? Just their way of saying, basically, Lord, why did you leave us? I mean, come on. We were expecting you to make uh, breakfast for us. Uh, you know, it's not right of you that you took off on us, okay? And Jesus said to them in, in verse 26, Look, you're only seeking me because I fed you with the bread and you were filled. Don't seek after that food that perishes but seek after that food that leads to everlasting life. So that's the context. And the idea is here that Jesus kind of gently reproves the crowd because they were putting so much emphasis on the physical, they were missing out on the greatest need, which was spiritual. Not that the physical is unimportant. God made our bodies. He knows they need to have food to survive. He knows we need shelter and other things. The body is important. It's just not to be all-consuming. 
And there's a lot of folks that the body is the God of their life, you know, and they live to serve the body in all of its forms. And Jesus was all about, and he did this all the time. He would meet physical needs, maybe feed people who were hungry, heal people who were sick, and so on. And then he used the opportunity, after he had met the physical need, he used the opportunity to elevate their thinking to the spiritual need, which was everlasting life. That was the most important thing. Uh, Jesus told us this in, in Matthew 6, verse 33. He said, look, uh, he said, um, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things you need to live, God will provide for you. God doesn't want us living at the level of the physical. I mean, that's the world. That's unbelievers. That's all they know. When it comes to his people, he wants us to live at the level of the spirit, be consumed with serving him and, uh, and, and following him and so on. And he'll take care of every physical need that we have. So through this interactive sermon, this discourse in John 6, the, I say interactive because it's questions and answers, but the Lord Jesus Christ is trying to elevate their thinking and perception from the physical to the spiritual. That brings us to our second main point, what I'm calling the divine declaration of the Savior. Now realize, he's wanting to elevate their thinking, their per perception of life from the mundane to the truly important, from the physical to the spiritual. Well, obviously, he needs to declare to them, obviously, as God, that they need a Savior, and he has come to give them forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the idea. So the divine declaration of the Savior, let me just start with the first part of verse 35, where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now, as I've already said in previous studies, this is the first of seven I am statements that John built his gospel around. John's gospel is highly organized. In fact, it's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are known as the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means similar. Those gospels are all similar in the sense they focus on Jesus' Galilean ministry. The Gospel of John is the only one that focuses on his Judean ministry. And, but it's highly organized, not like the others. That's why I love it so much. Not that those others are unimportant, they're great. But John's is different. It gives us a little unique perspective, right? And uh, as I said, highly organized. He built it around seven miracles that led to seven discourses that culminated in seven I am statements. As we said before, the... Uh, phrase I am is the name of God first expressed by the Lord to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 Moses go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go tell him I am is sending you right in John's gospel Jesus called himself I am again name of God coupled with seven different nouns think of it as a name coupled with a description I am, name of God, and then what follows is a noun but describes uh, something the Lord is or wants to be to us. Like Phil Balmeyer, my name, the pastor, okay? John's gospel, uh, each of these statements in John's gospel, there are seven I am statements. The first one appears right here in, Lu in uh, John 6, verse 35. Each of these statements, guys, is a declaration of divinity since each of them begins 
uh, with Jesus declaring himself to be the great I am in human form. And so as we have uh, entered into John 6, as we have said in previous studies, the whole chapter is built around the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. Again, that's 5,000 men plus women and children, probably upwards of 20,000 people. And um, it's built around the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which uh, then led to a very important discourse, which we are studying, a discourse that culminated and climaxed with his declaration of divinity, I am the bread of life. So in this section, Jesus likens himself to bread which is a staple of life, correct? And John 4, to the woman, of the woman of the well of Samaria, he likened himself to water, another staple of life. And by doing this, he was communicating two very important truths about himself. First of all, that he is essential for life. I mean, look, likening himself to bread and water, that's about as basic as you can get, okay? Uh, it's about as basic as you can get. And uh, bread and water um, are essential for life. But the context of this sermon, again, is eternal life. And Jesus called himself living water um, to the woman of Samaria in John 4. Well, she mistakenly thought he was talking about some kind of magic water, which if she drank, she would never thirst again physically, which prompted her to say to Jesus in John 4, 15, Please, sir, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again. And I'll paraphrase, I won't have to come to this stupid well every day. It's a lot of work. Dropping the buckets down, that is a deep well, by the way. Okay, we know that. Now, this was the same basic mistake the folks in John 6 made when Jesus talked to them about the true bread from heaven, verse 32, uh, they mistakenly thought he was talking about some kind of miracle bread, that once they ate of it, it would impart eternal life to them as long as they kept on ingesting it. Keep that in mind. We'll get back to that in a couple weeks. Keep it in mind. I'll, I'll remind you when we get there. But they thought he was talking about bread from heaven, Okay that uh, the Father sends, has sent to give life to the world. Oh, wow, that's pretty special bread. Uh, verse uh, 34, Lord, give us this bread always. Okay, uh, you know, if it's going to give us life, if it's going to cause us to live indefinitely, if we keep eating it, well, we want it, Lord. Will you please give us this bread always? But Jesus was about now to clarify that he wasn't talking about literal bread, but spiritual bread. He was talking about himself as being essential for eternal life. So, first of all, by telling us that he's bread and water, basically likening himself to uh, spiritual bread and water, uh, he is saying that he is essential for life. And number two, that he is accessible to all. Those are two very important truths, very basic, but very important, Right? that Jesus Christ is essential for life. Now, we're going to expand on that in a moment. Nothing else in this world is essential for the kind of life that Jesus is talking about. Number two, he is accessible 
to all. When Jesus called himself bread and water, guys, once again, these are staples for life that everybody on planet Earth has access to. I realize there are exceptions. In areas of drought and famine, people do die of lack of bread and water. But I'm talking about in the most basic terms. Everybody on planet Earth has access to the basic staples of life, bread and water, right? Now, if Jesus would have said, I am the caviar and the fine wine of life, well, that would have left a lot of folks out, right? That would have made eternal life because he spoke these things in, in regard to eternal life. If he would have said, I'm the caviar and fine wine of life, that would have made everlasting life uh, inaccessible to most of the people on planet Earth. Look, one of the blessed things that we need to understand, of course, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this. It's basic. When it comes to a person receiving eternal life, Jesus wanted us to know that it is available to anyone who wants it. Whether they be rich or poor, slave or free, whether they have lived a moral life or a wicked life, Jesus invites all to come to him. He is no respecter of persons. There are no restrictions. There are no caveats. He just says, if you want the life that I give, you come to me. Salvation is available for and attainable by every human being because it is a gift we receive by faith and not a reward we earn through our hard work, good deeds, or religious observances. So these folks made a couple of fundamental mistakes that we've kind of been looking at. We looked at the second one uh, this morning, but uh, let me just recap. The first mistake these folks made was to think that eternal life was something they had to work for. Now, again, we have to cut them a little slack. Uh, they were brought up in a very legalistic religious system known as Judaism. And in that system, as well as in all the other religious systems in the world, they're all built upon what a person does to earn their God's favor, and if they believe in a heaven, to work their way into heaven, and so on. All right? These folks made the mistake of thinking eternal life, because that's what Jesus was talking about. So they wanted it. So they made the mistake of thinking that they had to work for it, which caused them to say in verse 28, to ask, well, Lord, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? The idea is, what must we do to do what God wants us to do to earn eternal life? To which Jesus responded in verse 29, what, what is the work you must do? Here's the work, quote, unquote, that you believe, that you believe. Believe in him whom he has sent. So the first mistake that they made was thinking that they had to earn salvation. Secondly, the second mistake they made was to think that when Jesus said in verses 32 and 3, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They made the mistake of thinking that he was talking about physical bread the same way uh, they thought about the manna. Moses, and, it, and Jesus pointed out, well, it wasn't Moses that fed you 40 years in the wilderness with the manna. My father did that. But that's what they always thought, right? But they're thinking manna, and they're thinking Moses. And, and they're thinking, well, he, Moses fed our forefathers with literal bread. Yeah, it fell from heaven, but it was literal bread, manna, okay? And um, they thought 
He was talking in these verses about this true bread from heaven. Okay, it's another kind of literal. He fought, fed us with real bread last night. No reason to doubt he hasn't gotten mind here physical bread again, but this is magic bread. Because if we eat it, hey, we'll keep on living. And I guess the implication they kind of took away from this was, hey, as long as they kept ingesting this bread, whatever it was, they would live indefinitely. And so that led them to ask Jesus in verse 34, well, Lord, give us this bread always. Or in other words, Lord, if this true bread from heaven will give us life, please give it to us always. Now, at this point, the Lord Jesus begins to clarify that he's not talking about literal bread, but spiritual bread. In other words, he's talking about himself. Just as physical bread is essential for physical life, uh, he is the bread of God uh, who came down is essential for eternal life. Our second main point of our outline, the divine declaration of the Savior. I'm going to break that down into three sub-points. Number one, the source of eternal life. Number two, the skeptics of eternal life. And number three, actually these are A, B, and C. Uh, and number and uh, C, the security of eternal life. So again, verse 35, under the source of eternal life, he said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The idea of of behind never hungering and never thirsting uh, is not physical. Again, it's spiritual. Anyone who feeds on me, and we'll define what that means more as we progress, anyone who takes me in, who receives me, okay, will never hunger in their soul, will never thirst again in their soul. They'll be satisfied. You, I, I know that you guys who have received Christ, I, your testimony is the same as mine. All right. Before I got saved as a young guy, and I had all kinds of uh, ideas about uh, owning a business, because, you know, you own a business, you make a lot of money, can buy a lot of stuff. Guess what business I was planning on getting into? I was going to have open a liquor store. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. He delivered me from most stupid ideas. But, uh, yeah, a liquor store. In fact, it was either a liquor store or a deli. How does that work, right? And we had just moved into the area, you know, where we live now, still live in the same place. And everything was under development. They were building a little strip mall down this block from our house. And there were signs out in front, you know, uh, stores for rent, right? And so I said, this is it. I'm going to go there. We're going to rent, you know, I'm going to get a liquor store or a deli. I'm going to, you know, either one, right? So I go there to get the number, and here's the sign. I, this is the absolute truth. Here is a sign. It said, coming soon, Cove Liquor and Deli. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time. The Lord was saying, eh, you're not going to open a liquor store or a deli. I got other plans for your life. All right. Anyways, God's good, right? But, but notice the crux of this, guys, as Jesus is the source of eternal life. But only for those who do two things. He says it here. He who comes to me. He who believes in me. Now look. He says those have to, people have to come to me first. They have to come to me. Well, 
he was talking to a group of people that had come to him. In fact, they were following him all over the place, right? The problem was, and we know this in verse 36, they were following Jesus, quote unquote, but they hadn't yet put their faith in Christ. They were not believers. There's a lot of folks who follow Jesus. They come to church, right? And, uh, you know, hear his words, and then they leave and do nothing with it because really they have not, they believe with their heads, but not with their hearts, in other words. Even the demons believe who Jesus is and tremble, James tells us, right? But demons aren't going to heaven. Just because the demons know who Jesus is is not saving faith, right? And they can't be saved anyways, but you understand my point. There's a lot of folks, and I was one of them. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and they taught me a lot of right things. They taught me who Jesus Christ really was, uh, Son of God, came down to the earth, died for my sins, rose again the third day bodily from the grave. I had the basics nailed down. I believed those things. I wasn't saved, though. Why? Because I had not believed to the point of, listen, commitment. I had not believed to the point of commitment. Where I said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Come into my heart and take control of my life. I yield to you as my master. Very important, you know. Very important. So a lot of folks, they believe a lot of right things about Jesus, but it's all head knowledge. They have not entered into a commitment to him. And so in that regard, they're following him. Uh, like these folks were following him, but not for the right reasons. This sermon, in part, is to try to reveal to them, look, you're following me, Jesus would say to these people, but not for the right reasons. It's a very superficial thing. It's all about you. It's not because you want to hear my words and serve me and receive me as your Lord and Savior. It's all about you following me for selfish reasons, what I'm going to do for you, what I'm going to give to you. And at this moment, it's your stomach again that is the main issue. Jesus doesn't want to be Lord of our stomach. He wants to be Lord of our hearts. Sure, he's concerned about our stomachs. He made them. He doesn't want us to focus on him as being the Lord of the physical. So the emphasis, once again, on the bread of life discourse, guys, is eternal life. Now, let me just stop and say this, all right? Let me just stop for a minute and uh, try to define what eternal life is all about. What exactly is it? Well, we know that whatever it is, it's found only in Jesus. You know, John opened up his gospel. Fifty-four times in this gospel, John speaks of eternal life because he wanted everyone to receive Christ and drink deeply of the living water that only Christ could give. Eternal life was found only in Jesus. And so he opens his gospel with 18 verses known as a prologue. It's a general introduction that he nails down for us what Jesus, what Messiah he's talking about. A lot of messiahs came down the pike. Israel was always dealing with false messiahs. John wanted to know that the Messiah God promised, the Messiah that had come to the earth, was Jesus, and he wasn't just a man, he's God. And so John opens his gospel by telling us that Jesus is the source of eternal life. John 1 verse 4, in him, and the idea is in him alone, exclusively was life. 
Now in saying this, John is not talking about physical life because he uses the Greek word zoe. And zoe refers to spiritual life. Whereas the Greek word bios, from which we get the English word biology, that is the Greek word for physical life. So John is saying that not only is Jesus the founder of all physical life. He nailed that down in verse 3 of John 1 when he said all things were made through him, through Christ. He made all the physical universe, everything in it. He is not only the founder of all physical life, John goes on in verse 4 to tell us he is also the fountain from which all spiritual life flows as well. But just... <laughs> What is this life that is only found in Jesus? Well, first of all, concerning this life, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. Again, Greek word zoe. I have come that you might have zoe, spiritual life, and that you might have it more abundantly. Whatever this life is, we know. Jesus wants us to have it, and not just have it a little bit. He wants us to have it in abundance in our lives. In abundance. Our God never does anything small. Do you notice that about our God? He never does anything small. If he wants to give you his love, he wants to give you so much it comes overflowing your life and spills onto all around you. David said, my cup, what? is just a little sip in the bottom there. My cup overflows. God wants you to be a conqueror. Just barely be a conqueror? What did Paul say? We are what? More than conquerors. Our God is always speaking in superlatives because he is a God that doesn't want to just give you enough to get by. He wants to overflow you with his blessings. And this is the, the, the main idea and the most important blessing that he wants to overflow your life with his eternal life this zoe life right this abundant life now look if we were to go around today if i gave you a little assignment and said look why don't you go out this week and kind of hit the streets of your town wherever you live and see if you can you know come up to somebody and say look can i ask you a question if they don't run away from you okay that's a good start uh but but can i ask you a question can you define life for me would you do that I, I'm convinced for many this would be a little difficult, okay? Um, most people, I, I'm convinced, would probably try to define life in terms of a quality of living. They would say that life is, you know, about achieving a certain level of happiness and based on material possessions and affluence. But guys, listen, the abundant life that Jesus spoke of isn't, isn't external, as many believe and teach, it isn't an abundance of money, possessions, or earthly success. This life is spiritual in nature. It's spiritual in nature. As Jesus said in John 6, verse 63, the words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Look, guys, we know. Money can buy you things, but not happiness. Money can buy you books, but not wisdom, right? Money can buy you a quality of living, but not a quality of life. The first being outward, the second being inward. There's a lot of wealthy people who have everything outwardly money can buy. 
they have an incredible quality of living, don't they? But many of them are miserable. Suicide rate among the wealthy is pretty high. Because their money can buy them a quality of living. It can't buy them a quality of life. A quality of living is external. Quality of life is internal. And only Jesus can fulfill and overflow the emptiness inside a person. And when he does, an incredible thing happens. You don't even care about the outward stuff anymore. When I got saved, I stopped caring about uh, making money, having a lot of nice stuff. Do I like nice stuff? Sure, it's not important to me. Uh, we still live in the house that I bought just before we got engaged. It's a little duplex that we live in the area here. And we've raised our kids there, and now it's a great retirement home. I don't see why we're going to move anytime soon. Now, when I drive around the neighborhood and I see very beautiful houses, I mean, can I appreciate those? Yeah, and I do. Do I covet them? Honestly, I don't. I'm happy. I'm happy. I, I, I don't need those to be happy. I used to think I did. I don't need them anymore. I have a wonderful, beautiful wife and children and grandchildren. I have love in my home. I don't need what, more rooms in a bigger facility or bigger building is not going to make us happy, more happy, right? Jesus told us this. You know, it's, it's what Paul called the deceitfulness of riches. No matter how much I have, I'm still kind of empty inside, so just a little more. A little more money, a little more success, a little more possessions, and I'll be happy. Jesus said in Luke's 12:15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. You see, eternal life, Zoe life, isn't just a quantity of life, guys. It is a quality of life. When we talk about eternal life, understand the beauty of eternal life, the kind that Jesus gives, is not in its length, never-ending life, uh, never-ending existence. That in and of itself wouldn't make a person happy if they were in a hospital bed being kept alive by machines, can't feed themselves, can't get out of bed, can't even talk but can hear, and you walked into that hospital room knowing that they were there, and you went over and whispered in their ear, how would you like to live forever? If they could talk to you, they'd say, are you crazy? I'm praying for death. That's what I'm hoping for. It's the only release I, I have from this existence. Look, eternal life in and of itself, life for eternity, uh, it's not really a blessing in and of itself. People in hell are going to live forever, and that's not a blessing. I guarantee it. The thing that makes eternal life so wonderful, so appealing, again, is not its quantity, never-ending. It's its quality, life in all of its fullness and richness. What makes... The eternal life Jesus gives so appealing 
is that it's a life, it's an existence that really right now we can't even imagine. I tell people, look, your, um, your best day on earth, how, how does it go? Your, um, oh man. It gets hard for us as Christians on this earth. But, you know, as Paul said, whatever you go through in this life, it, it can't even compare. I mean, the, 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 the little bit of suffering we endure won't even compare to the glory once we get to heaven. Yeah, it gets rough now. But know this, for us as Christians, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. For unbelievers, this is as good as it's ever going to get. The eternal life that Jesus gives is never-ending life in all of its fullness, richness, joy, and blessing. How do you receive this eternal life? You receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You invite him into your heart to take control of your life. John 3, you are born again, right? Because in the Garden of Eden, we were at one time connected with God. Adam and Eve were created in communion with God, created as a tri triune beings, body, soul, and spirit. Of course, their spirit was connected to God's spirit, and they had communion with God. They had fellowship with God. But when they sinned against God, their spirit died. In the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Well, they didn't die physically, but they did die spiritually. And they, their communion with God was severed. No longer three-dimensional beings, now two-dimensional creatures, like animals. Animals have a body and a consciousness. That's what the human race was reduced to. That's why unbelievers often live like animals, only focusing on their body appetites. But when you give your heart to Christ, at that instant, an incredible thing happens. A miracle takes place. Your spirit comes alive and is reconnected to God. It becomes your spiritual umbilical cord, if you will, allowing the life of God to flow from him into your life. Because now you're connected to God, spirit to spirit. And this is the, the abundant life is God's life. The only way to have God's life in you is by receiving Christ. At that moment, the spirit of God moves in. Our spirit is born again. We have communion with God, fellowship with him. It's an incredible thing that, you know what, no unbeliever can, you can explain it to an unbeliever, but they can't really fathom it. It's like trying to explain the beauty of a sunset to somebody who was born blind. You can try, they're not going to get it though. Just like you can try to tell an unbeliever what being a Christian really is all about in this communion you have with God, you know, they're not going to get it. In some ways you're casting your pearls before the swine. They just don't get it. The only way they're going to ever understand it is to experience it, right? So spiritual life is when we give our heart to Christ and are connected to God. And uh, it's God within us now through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And again, guys, and we'll just say this and move on. This life that Jesus gives is a dynamic life, a fruitful life, a fulfilled life, a joyful life. It's an over flowing life as jesus said to the woman of john 4 by the well of sychar he said if you drink the water that i give you will never thirst again it will be like a fountain bubbling up within you into everlasting life in other words you'll never be uh you'll never thirst in your soul she was thirsting in her soul 
There was an emptiness inside of her. She thought she could fill it with human relationships. So she was married and divorced five times. Now she was just living with a guy. And Jesus said, look, you're thirsting in your soul. But what you're thirsting for, no physical thing can, hand, can satisfy. No relationship, no possession. Come to me. You drink of me. In other words, if you receive me into your heart, well, you'll be satisfied. You'll never thirst again. In fact, it'll be like a fountain bubbling up from within you, a fountain that will overflow your life and spill onto everybody around you because they're going to see you're different. They're going to see what's with you. Man, I knew you before. You were always down. You're always worried. There's joy on your face. You're, you're never worried anymore. I mean, what's going on? Oh, let me tell you about it. I've received Jesus. It's a whole different life. It, it, you can't... You, you, you can't understand unless you've experienced it. And so as the Lord Jesus is presenting his bread of life discourse, which is emphasizing eternal life, he first talks about himself, A, as the source of eternal life. Then he moves to our second sub-point, B. He talks about the skeptics of eternal life, verse 36. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So we know that this multitude was made up of unbelievers, for the most part. The skeptics of eternal life. Look, a skeptic is a person who has the facts presented to them, whether those facts are presented verbally or, and or visibly, but they can't bring themselves to accept and embrace the truth that those facts are pointing to. When Jesus said to the multitude, that they had seen him. Understand he's not talking about a superficial kind of a seeing, as opposed to I see you today and now and tomorrow I'm not going to see you maybe. He used a very special Greek word that means to see and to understand. Not that they did, but they should have, is, is the idea of what he was communicating. In other words, what he is saying here is that he made sure that they had seen him perform enough miracles to know who he claimed to be. That he was, in fact, the Messiah and Savior, the one who had come down from heaven, like the manna, many years earlier. He was now the living bread who came down from heaven, sent from the Father, and yet, even though they saw him, they didn't know him. They didn't understand. Why? Because they were so fixated on the physical, they were missing the spiritual. There's a lot of folks like that in our culture. God has made himself known to them. Oh, if I believe in God, I'll believe in God if he just shows himself to me. Duh. In Romans 1 verse 20, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Right? You know, often we think that a person doesn't believe in God because they lack information. But the truth is that often the problem isn't in their head, it's in their heart. They willfully, willfully reject the knowledge of God because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Why do they reject the knowledge of God? Because verse 18 says in Romans 1 that they want to live unrighteous lives. They want to live in sin. They want to do their own thing. 
And so even though God has clearly revealed himself through the creation that he exists, they suppress that knowledge because they want to live the way they want to live. They don't want God messing with their lives. They just can't handle the idea. See, if they acknowledge God exists, then maybe they have to acknowledge that they owe him because he made them. And if God made me, don't I owe him to live for him? I don't want to do that. Okay? I don't want to do that. They can't handle that. Look, for the person who wants to live in sin, they really only have two choices. First, believe in God and live with the guilt of their disobedience, right? But who wants to live with guilt all the time? That feels kind of lousy. So the second option is get rid of God. No God, no guilt. However, it's really not that easy rejecting the existence of God because this little thing called the creation keeps staring them in the face. Psalm 19 says the creation, in a universal language, declares the glory of God. And of course, that would also imply declares the existence of God. In fact, Paul said in Romans 1 that creation is such a clear and unmistakable source of revelation that anyone who stands before the Lord on the day of judgment can't plead ignorance, can't say, you know, Lord, well, I would have believed in you, Lord, but, you know, I, I, I didn't know you existed. You never came by my house and told me here I am. God says, did I not tell you that the creation declares my glory? Well, but, Lord, I didn't really read your word. Well, that was your mistake. Okay. Um, many are going to stand before the Lord in the day of judgment and try to plead ignorance. And he's going to say, you know what? You have no recourse. You have no recourse. You can't plead ignorance because everywhere you looked, the creation, in a universal language that all understand, was declaring that I exist and was declaring my glory. So that you're without excuse. But look, getting back to the people Jesus was addressing as we bring this to a close. They had seen his miracles, which clearly pointed to him as the one God had promised in their own scriptures. We've talked about the scriptures that all over the place talk about Messiah's coming and what he would do when he came and so on. And here he is, and he's fulfilled everything, okay? And... Um, Proven because of their own scriptures, he was in fact the Messiah and Savior that the Father had promised. And so Jesus is basically indicting these people for their, listen, willful ignorance. Their willful ignorance, which was simply proof that they didn't belong to him. Now look, we all started out as, uh, as unbelievers. Some of us might have been a little harder uh, unbelievers than others. And yet, God can touch hard-hearted unbelievers and save them. He's done that for probably many in this room. What Jesus is saying, look, if you have willful unbelief and you wind up dying, well, that unbelief was just simply a testimony that, or a proof, that you were not my sheep. You were not my sheep. Turn to John 10 quickly. In John 10, Jesus could be speaking to this same group at a different occasion. He said in verse 25, I told you, see, I, I've, I have given you the truth, 
that my Father has sent me to preach. I've given it to you faithfully. And yet you do not believe. The works that I do, I've also done miracles. That's what the Greek word here. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. And we'll study that when we get there. Those people who are just hard-hearted unbelievers, pray for them. Pray for them. It could be, though, that they are hard-hearted because they're just not Jesus, one of Jesus' sheep. And so now the Lord turns his attention to those who are his sheep and who will come to him and receive him as their Lord and Savior. Now, we won't actually get into this. I just want to read it to you. The third sub-point under our second main point, what I'm calling the security of eternal life. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now these verses contain a lot of truth that we need to understand. The bulk of what Jesus is saying here, though, about those who come to him for salvation, we'll save for next time, okay? But let me just close this morning and actually use it to kind of open or introduce next week's study. Remember what Jesus said in John 12, verse 32. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. By saying this, did Jesus mean that after his crucifixion, he would, of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit, draw all the peoples on earth to him to be saved? In other words, was he saying that salvation would be available to everyone on planet earth? Or was he saying that the all he would draw to himself for salvation would be limited to a special and small group called the elect. In other words, is Jesus saying in John 12, 32, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all the elect to myself. Which begs the question, how can I know if I'm one of the elect? Because if I'm not, I can't get saved. I can't go to heaven. That's a t fearful thought, which means it's an important question. I mean, when Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me all, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Did he mean all in the sense of anyone in the world or all in the sense of only those belonging to the elect, to that specific group? There are some teachings that are going around and... Um, held by a lot of folks that I respect. They're, they're, they're true Christians. But I think that they greatly, they do great damage to a lot of things that Jesus said because their theology is, well, 
let's just say I don't agree with it. And we'll look at some of it next week because it's an important question that we need to uh, grapple with. And uh, I'm not saying we'll come to an agreement. There are good folks on the other side of the argument that I will never persuade. And that's okay. As long as we look at what God's word says and then you decide for yourself. But uh, we'll look at that, God willing, next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is truth. But we do need your spirit to guide us into the truth, Lord. Because we want to make sure that we are walking in the truth of your word, interpreting it properly and sharing it uh, without error. So, Lord, we ask that you continue to bless these studies in your word. And, Lord, we ask that you just would continue to bless this church, move it forward into the future. And, Lord, do in and through us exceedingly abundantly, above, above all that we could ask or think for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.